0: Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host,
1: Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everyone? I sound fucked up because I've had the worst allergies for the last like one and a half weeks. So that's like... At least it's not COVID. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I tested myself for COVID on Wednesday. I was like, Yo, this is really fucking bad, but I'm trying to get off these stupid um, medication and shit. You so. always have allergies or is this new? I have, but I've always just taken the medication. Now I'm like, yo, this is like getting worse and worse every single year. So I'm just trying to like cold turkey but it's you. almost wish up. it was COVID.
0: So then yeah. <laughs> at least you know <laughs> there's a beginning and end to it, right? This is going to be a seasonal <laughs> thing for you. Uh, but man, on my end of things, it's been a while since we did this sort of catch up. Yeah. If people listen to a few episodes back, I was talking about a flip that I picked up in Windsor. Ended up paying the wholesaler a pretty hefty fee. So we had it listed. We tried to go for the bidding war strategy and we only got one offer at 305K conditional. And that wasn't even enough for us to break even, which is surprising. How much did you buy it for? We bought it for 237.5. We put about 42,000, maybe 41,000 in renovations. And then you have to account for like realtor fees, minimal holding costs, but you know, things like that. All in, we're about, Three oh six K in the project or three oh seven K. I just gotta double check it one more time, but that includes realtor fees, like built in everything, right? So three oh five. I didn't do all this work to break even. Not that I did a ton (laughs) of work. It was like ten hours. It was super easy, but that took me for a loop. I was like, "What did I do wrong here with my analysis?" Because there are properties that are trading at the four hundreds. Then you take a deeper look into it, and this was one of my fears getting into the projects. There was two or three properties nearby. I would say like two or three minute walking distance that were sitting on the market, but they were listed higher as well. They were listed for like 390, around that range. They were slightly better and to my property in the sense that it had heat pumps. Aesthetically, very similar, maybe a little bit worse than my property, but they have heat pumps. Mine's electric baseboards, right? So I was like, okay, I mean, take off 20 to 30K, take off 40K from that, right? Like still sell it at 350 and uh, that would still be a good chunk of change. But for whatever reason, it's just not an ultra desirable area. We didn't have the walkthroughs that we wanted, even though we listed it super cheap and staged it beautifully. People just don't actively look in that area. So it's not reflective of everything else going on in Windsor. And we could have taken so it. Was, a step it was, this,
1: was this East Windsor?
0: This was Little River Acres or something like that. So it is East Windsor, but it's that pocket of East Windsor that I guess is not as attractive to homeowners. So the days on market there is generally longer than the days on market in any other neighborhood in Windsor, really. So it's something that went over my head. But we ended up selling it firm at 330000 So what is that? The profit yeah. is a little bit like close to $25,000. Um, it's not bad. Yeah, not bad. No leverage, no debt. So if we add on leverage there, it would have been like 5k in profit. But the bigger thing is if I added on leverage, I would have taken a 305 offer maybe because every month that I'm sitting and waiting, I get worried and worried, right? But Mm -hmm. there's no holding cost. So it made me much more relaxed. Two months, the project. So when I bought it, when I'm closing it for the sale, which is April 25th, it's exactly two months. So 10k a month, not bad if we were to prorate that out and about 10 hours in total. So the hourly wage worked out well, but that a lot of learning lessons from there. I got a real, especially in this current market, I got to pay attention to days on inventory as well.
1: But yeah. So it's interesting, man, because like that's the kind of flips that I used to do, right? And you're right. 20 grand for two months. It's not bad. But this was my like moment of realization where I just went, if you had loaned out your money, like how much of a rate of return do you think you'd be able to get? with the lender fees, with the interest, it's not the same. I don't think it's as high, because like, it might not be 20 grand, it might be like 10, 15 grand, but it's kind of like for doing nothing. Is it 10, 15 grand in two months? It'd be like 10, 50 no, grand no. for the year. Probably, it'd probably be like on 200 grand over the course of a year, you would earn, call it like 30, 32, right? So for yeah. like six months. Like, but the return not, is much better, two months. <laughs> no, I agree, I agree, but there's risk, right? Because yo, know, every time we get an offer on a flip property, Yeah, I'd be like, "Fuck!" If I turn this down, like, what am I gonna do with this property? It's not like a rental where we don't get the price we want, we can just kind of hold out, right? Uh, These are like, at least for me, yeah,
0: yeah. So with this one in particular, it is like low hanging fruit. It's cheap. I could have birded if I wanted to. It probably wouldn't be cash flow positive. There was exit strategies. I agree with your kind of sentiment, though. I think the flips you take on the difference is like. It's bigger projects, right? This one can yeah. finish the renovations literally in two weeks. That's uh, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like that, I'm looking to do another one. So if anyone has deals like that, hit me up. Just keep the money rolling, going for low inventory, cheap things that probably won't get impacted by rates as much. But what's going on in your end, man? How's uh, the Minden property coming along? I know. Man, you I got fucked the, on that
1: one. That one is great. <laughs> oh <laughs> um, no! So that one went a full six months. When I got the private money, I even told the private lender, I'm like, yeah, like, you know, we're probably going to repay you at like four months or so, like four to five, like somewhere in that ballpark. We went right up, like it's refinancing today. It's closing today, which is exactly six months after. Mm -hmm. So we had delays. We had no heat, as you guys know, at some point we had Christmas in there. Contractors didn't really want to work for like two and a half weeks. And so really, I'd say from December 15th to like January 20th until we got proper heat, it was just a wasted time. And then. Well, hold on. What happened with your plumbing? with no heat. Probably we turned off. Okay, good good. Drain the line and turn it off. So what basically happened is we knew we had to repay the private on April 15th or I'd have to go through getting another private or renewing for lender fees and stuff like that. So we got an appraisal done last a week and a half ago. I went up there, met with this guy. I said look, it's 90% done. You know what like ceiling tiles are? You yeah. ceiling tiles, right? There was like three ceiling tiles missing and in the bathroom in the basement there was like two walls that hadn't been painted. And in the bedroom, there were two walls that hadn't been painted. I'm like, look, it's like 90% there. like It was basically done. And he's like, yeah, but like, he's like, would you say this is finished? I'm like, yes. And he's like, no, this is like partially finished. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I'm like, this is this is two extra bedrooms and a washroom in the basement. I'm like, how is this like partially finished? It's like 90% there. He's like, yeah, but the bank's concerned about what is the value if you decide to walk away from this property today? So I already knew the show was going to come in bad because mm-hmm. the way it's laid out is it's 3,000 square feet between the two floors. Three bedrooms upstairs two bedroom in the basement mm-hmm. of course he gives us the appraisal he valued it at 540 and comped it against three bedroom houses and i was like well you are a motherfucker so yeah the result was it was enough to pay out the private we pulled out about a 100 and um i want to say it was like 140 or something like that on top okay but we still Damn. have a net. no we still have a heavy net investment of like 80 to 90 grand so we've got to do a top-up refinance but I didn't want to eighty uh, or ninety renew. each or eighty ninety in total. Combined. That's not the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, but like it was supposed to be the value should have came in at about six fifty to seven hundred. So now we just and I confirmed that we can just go in like two months or so we can just add a top up mortgage to like a second mortgage. Yeah. So not too concerned, but it just kinda fucking sucks on a timeline perspective and the project. But you gotta Airbnb it now, right? Or yeah, and so we gotta spend money on on furniture. Right, and uh-huh. I want to do the exterior, which we haven't done because we were just focused on the interior. And we we're going to use a refinance funds for the exterior. Mm-hmm. So I got to spend more money on that, so it kind of sucks. But the value there, not too concerned. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'd, I kind of already had some plans for the money, but I'm just going to take it a little bit slower. I think now, yeah. Like I almost got into this one development deal uh, with an individual who owns the land free and clear, and then mm-hmm. I was going to come in, and it's in Toronto, and I was going to come in and. A for the construction or like part of the construction and get construction financing for the remainder. Like you yeah. kind of have to do it in draws, right? But that guy ultimately, like I met with him two days ago, he's valuing his land. He's valuing his line as he should. I was trying to value it lower and I was trying to make mm-hmm. it win-win, but so we'll see. It might be that it might be something else, but trying to get, mm-hmm. get into something a little bit more development-oriented so that eventually the goal is now changing to development of multifamily. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to start off trying to build, like a 15 or 20 unit apartment building. That's just way too much risk. So you start off with like a small family or so and see how it goes.
0: Yeah. That's interesting that you mentioned that is going back to that kind of development that you're talking about. Why was the land value in, oh, I guess to calculate profits. So he's trying to figure out the baseline. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So then he had appointed a value to the land where I was like, honestly, if you could sell it for that much, sell it. Like, yeah, let's not even build it. Like, why would he build yeah. right? and, and what I was asking for was a little bit aggressively low, but what he was asking for was a little bit aggressively high. So we don't know. And then it kind of worked out. Like he's also looking to sell his mom's house, which is the back house. So might just end up buying that. We'll see what kind of pans out there. But yeah. yeah, the investing strategies are changing a little bit. I find I just want to try something new, get into a different type of project and development sounds fun and exciting. And if I can do it in a low risk way, that's what I'd like to do.
0: Why do you consider that low risk? Because there's no land acquisition cost.
1: There's no land financing. Like the land is free and clear. And free then and basically clear. I'd put it, I'd put in about 400, 400 to 550. And then we'd get That's construction fin- we'd get financing for the rest. So it would be two houses that are being built. Total cost mm. was about 1.2 on the high end for like really, really nice finishes. And then you get construction financing for the remainder. And so like the debt on the property would only be about 8 to 900. Mm -hmm. Even if you like value the land at zero, which is like your worst, worst, worst case, our cost per house is 600, like pretty low risk for like Toronto proper Mm -hmm. for development. It's just, we don't know what we don't know, obviously, but I don't think I'm going to make $400,000 in incremental expenses on each house for me to kind of see the risk there, but yeah, we'll see.
0: Yeah, we also have that Campbell House, you know, that could be a yeah, development.
1: <laughs> Don't forget church, That's man. pretty
0: much free and clear, I'd say, because we can sever it and, and that would all be gravy and profit. So we do have a for the audience who doesn't know, we have a duplex with vacant land beside. And we've just been sitting on that vacant land and <laughs> we're debating selling it, building, doing something with it.
1: We also have church, man, but that problem is. You start the construction there. We're going to be that Vancouver, uh, not Vancouver. was it? Vaughn pre-construction. Two oh yeah, where someone just lights it on fire. Gonna on fire. <laughs> that's good, That's going to be us, bro. We start that shit on church. <laughs> yeah. I know we have those potentials, but I think the problem there is like if the cost to construct is even like 200, 300 a square foot, it makes it harder in low price yeah. neighborhoods. But as Windsor becomes more expensive, we will have the ability to redevelop those, I think. Yeah, so. no
0: rush for us, right? Because ultimately we're just sitting on this right now. But anyways, that's enough rambling from us. We should yeah. jump into today's podcast episode. This is going to be an exciting episode for you guys. I'm sure you already know who the guest is. It is the one and the only Aaron Bay, master of Airbnb, uh, not only in Canada, but in the US now as well. If you guys haven't checked up our earlier episode with Aaron, what w- do you remember the episode number? It was one of the first 20 episodes, I want to say, so you guys can find it there. But we went into kind of starting his business at the beginning. But in this episode, we talk about what he's been up to, his aggressive expansion into the U.S., the difference between operating an actual business versus investing in real estate. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I see Ma, you just told me episode 23, so I was off. (laughs) But um, we talk about the differences between investing in real estate and a business and the pros of building a business versus just traditionally, again, buying assets in real estate this is an episode you don't want to miss out on. If you guys follow Aaron on Instagram, you already know he he drops golden nuggets uh, every day. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy. Leave us a five star review. Share this episode with a friend and let's jump into it. We are joined with our very special guest for a part two. And this is probably a very anticipated episode to a lot of our audience members. We're here with the one and the only Aaron Bay. Aaron, how's it going, my man? Good. How are you? I
1: think you're doing better. It's been a while since you jumped on just in case someone doesn't know you. I think if you guys aren't already following Bay Money on Instagram, definitely give them a follow. Some really good content there, but just in case someone doesn't know your journey, just kind of like a one minute spiel on how you got started in this kind of the, the quick rundown on, I think last time we ended up talking about some of the multifamilies, but
2: kind of the first call it two, three years of your journey, if you were to summarize it. Sure. I mean, um, I dropped out of school at the age of 21. I'm 30 today. Basically worked a lot of minimum wage jobs, saved a lot of money, got into Airbnb arbitrage, got into real estate investing. And now I'm just a professional home renter where I lease properties and put them on Airbnb for profit. And we've scaled this business to about $6 million a year in revenue, and uh, we're still growing.
0: Yeah, that's an insane summary. So let's let's dive into it. (laughs) a lot to break down there. So almost want to fast forward from the beginning of your journey. For those who didn't listen to the first episode, make sure to definitely check that out. But since we last chatted, you have done a lot of things. One of the biggest things was scaling your Airbnb business outside of just multifamilies and single families and duplexes in Canada. So you've entered the States, you entered the luxury Airbnb market, if I'm not mistaken, as well in Vancouver. And then you have plans to scale internationally outside as well. So I don't know which direction we want to take it first. Let's let's keep it geographic. Let's keep it in Canada. So let's start with the Lux sort of model. How did you get introduced to what Lux Airbnb is? How is it much different than what you were doing previously? And what are some of the challenges and obstacles that you went through when starting a Lux Airbnb business?
2: Yeah. So I started doing a lot of the regular run-of-the-mill properties. So your single family house, your duplex, that kind of Airbnb. And what I realized is that although it was very profitable, it was smaller margins for the most part. And we decided, hey, you know, let's explore what other properties that are out there. So while we we're doing market research, we came across very luxurious properties that are renting out for you know two thousand, three thousand, even five thousand and upwards per night, and that really intrigued me as a business model. So upon further deep diving, I was looking into the cost basis from our rental arbitrage standpoint, and I realized you can rent these properties for about twenty thousand a month. So when I did the math, I was like. Well, Lux Airbnb is basically a margin game, right? So most people think that Airbnb is an occupancy game where you have to get a lot of bookings throughout the calendar month to make your profits. But for Lux Airbnb, you can still make a pretty good profit being like 50% occupied. So even if like you're only 15 out of the 30 days booked, you could still be making like 20, 30,000 a month in net profits. And that's kind of like what really intrigued me was just getting into that kind of game. And what I also realized is that a lot of the clientele that we have are higher profile guests. So we haven't found anyone who's like super famous or anything, but again, it provides ample opportunities for some networking and just kind of touching, I guess, contacts with people who may potentially produce opportunities later on down the road. So I guess
1: before we keep
2: going with that, I guess for anyone that's curious,
1: it was episode 23 is when we had Aaron on the first time. So if it feels like we're jumping ahead, make sure you just go check that episode out. So you had the single families because we talked about earlier, there was that Toronto house hack that you guys had kind of were living for free and cash flow positive in Toronto. You had the multifamily kind of the apartment buildings that, and I think the motel as well at that time. I'm not sure if you still have those, but you had taken, I think, 80 units and you kind of put them on Airbnb. And so you still have those businesses going, right? And then what's really the difference when you move into Lux and is it just that you've got to be comfortable with the the bigger checks or how would you say, what would you say the main
2: differences? I think the biggest hurdle really getting into Lux is just being comfortable with the fact that there's going to be a lot higher costs to set up and the problems can be a lot higher in terms of like a price tag. So when you're dealing with the smaller properties, you may have like a small leak or, you know, someone ruins a couch and it's maybe like a $500 fix. But when you're getting into the Lux game, you know, really any problem you have can be $5,000, even $10,000, $15,000. So you have to understand that the larger you go, the bigger the problems can be. So I think that was one of the biggest hurdles for me is like, okay, are we in a position where we're able to stomach, you know, a $10,000, $20,000 loss in any operating month? And, you know, at the time we had about 80 listings on Airbnb on the Canadian side. And we're making pretty decent money over there. So we decided that, you know what, no matter what happens, we still have the cash flow to float any operational losses that we may incur. And just basically, like entrepreneurship is basically operating with incomplete information, right? So I decided, hey, you know what, I think the upside just far outweighs the risk. So I I want to get into the lux market.
0: Yeah. So the important thing to mention there is like you didn't jump into it knowing that this would erode all of your existing profits and you're going to lose more money. Like it's money that you were able to lose worse comes to worse because you've had launched 80 units that could cover any sort of risk associated with these bigger sort of projects. Now with the Lux, you've been operating it for a few months now. So I'm curious to hear what were some of the obstacles that you faced while operating it? How is occupancy and B? I know you said it's not really an mm-hmm. occupancy game, but just out of curiosity, how are you hitting that 50% mark? And what are the typical sort of clientele that you have coming out to your properties and are they just found through Airbnb or are you like kind of stretching your network outside of Airbnb to get these clients to, I know it's a loaded question. So maybe we unpack it one <laughs> by one.
2: Sure. So in terms of the occupancy part one thing you have to realize with luxes is, is that you need significant lead time. And what lead time basically is, is how far out in advance are people booking, right? So what I've realized is that people are not looking to book a Lux last minute. And therefore, if you have a Lux and have only been operating for maybe a few months, you'll realize that the first loaded calendar months can be more vacant and you will run into some losses. However, the longer you hold the luxes, the more opportunities you have to build the lead time to get the bookings that are significantly higher margin. And therefore you run into those higher profitable months. So you have to look at the business as on an annual basis and not simply like a month to month basis, because for anyone like who's looking at their calendar, who's doing the lux, they may see that, oh, January, February was really slow. They may have had only a few bookings that span maybe for like a week. So they may have come out of pocket for those months But you have all that time to get the bookings for the summer. And, you know, we're talking about maybe like a four-night reservation yielding $20,000. So I could break even with a four-night reservation in the summertime. So when you're looking at an annualized basis, what's the profitability there? Like, that's how you have to think about it. So in terms of obstacles, like we've had to come out of pocket for, I would say, the winter months because it is definitely slower. And with the whole like Airbnb slowdown, Lux isn't unaffected either. Like it's definitely affected to a degree. But with that said, people are still traveling, especially the high net worth individuals who are looking to travel and book luxury properties for the summertime or for whatever vacation they're doing. They're still traveling and still booking these properties for higher high tickets reservations. So primarily Airbnb, we have realtors who are also kind of on the lookout for clientele who may want to book these kind of properties. So it's a combination of Airbnb, just finding the right networks and I guess getting inroads to like insurance companies and corporate housing kind of companies as well. Yeah. I don't know if you only do this in the U S or if you're doing
1: this in Canada as well, but the U S arguably bigger market, just more, I don't know, like wealthy people, like less, less of a taxation, like stuff like that higher disposable income and so on. Is this a strategy that really works in a large market like the US? Or is it actually something that people could properly implement in Canada? Because it's like Toronto luxury is going to be like fucking like thousand square feet. Like it's not like true luxury, right? So I'm just curious there, like Toronto, Vancouver. Those are really the only two big cities I think we have, unless you want to consider like Calgary,
2: maybe Montreal, like right. So is this really a US strategy then? I think it's primarily a US strategy. You'd want to do a lux in primary markets like for example, like Miami, California, like the West Coast, near LA, Malibu, California. Like I noticed that those markets, the luxes are significantly more expensive per night and their calendars are more filled up. I would say Vancouver is probably the only viable market in Canada right now, unless I'm missing some areas. I think even in Toronto, you're not really going to get those kind of luxe properties where you can really do this at scale. Even even Vancouver, I think is it's pretty limited to like what you can really do. So if anyone out there is actually looking to get into Lux Market, I would highly advise you get into the US and look into markets where there's high travel demand, especially for celebrities and high net worth individuals. Like you want to cater to the grand cardones, right? And not just like some random guy who's looking to book a van vacation in Canada.
1: Cause you guys were doing pretty good in Canada. What kind of led you to go down the U.S. route? Is it only lux that you're doing in the U.S.? Or are there kind of other things that you've got going on in the U.S.? I'm just curious about that.
2: So the U.S. was primarily due to the efficiencies of acquisition. So basically, we're like, we're at 80 listings. How can we 10x this, right? And by taking on more duplexes and triplexes, it was a struggle. So we actually went a different route. And we're looking to get into apartment buildings. So we would lease maybe 10, 20, 30 units in an entire apartment building. And that's kind of the route we're going now. And, you know, in the U S because there are so many new builds and because, you know, there's, it's so heavily populated. Each state is so heavily populated that you can find like buildings where they're just completing renovations or just finishing construction. And you can actually pre-lease 10, 20, 30 units and then put them on Airbnb. Right. So that's pretty much why we've gone into the US market is because it's more efficient to scale that way. And we find the margins to be greater and the cost of setup is actually lower.
0: Interesting. Okay. Okay. So it seems like market sizing is obviously a big one for you guys. Let's start with the basics of the US. Someone wants to get in there. One of the most important thing is generating the leads in general and and building credibility. Obviously, you proved yourself in Canada, but in the States, as we know, there's a lot of big players in the US. And so I find that a lot of Canadian. Investors who get in the US, they pretty much have to start from scratch again. A lot of people in the States don't care about your track record in another country. How did you go about getting over those hurdles, the lead
2: generation, and building credibility? Well, I mean, the credibility part was a challenge for sure because we had no credit history, we had no name. So it was more of a numbers game of just hitting up like basic agents from numerous properties and just trying to sell them our story. And basically, we found one property manager who was okay with us testing it out in their building. And because luckily we had a test case to show right on the Canadian side. So we were like, Hey, we we're do this in Canada already. Can we do it in the U S you know? And, um, they were willing to take a chance on us and therefore we're willing to give us uh, 10 units to start. Um, I think it's definitely a challenge for a lot of people who are just starting out. So maybe getting into the apartment leasing game is not the right way for a newbie. Maybe just working with like a smaller investor, someone who maybe has a few doors and just convincing them of your property, your proposition, your value proposition there. And just making sure that you're really selling them on the idea of the value you bring to an investor and then getting into maybe a single family house, a duplex and just starting small to build that track record. I would say that's probably the best way to start.
1: So I think between the two, if we take out the Canada stuff, because I guess you guys have been doing that for a while and maybe your leases and stuff like that are lower, right? But if we just focus on the two strategies in the U.S., one being getting into apartment buildings and the second being the luck side, which one, I guess, drives a higher return? Risk weighting it, I know it's going to be difficult to really risk weight something. But if we just talk about pure numbers and like compare like, I don't know, the percentage that you guys are investing versus the percentage upside and the potential downside as well, right? Which ones get you the best numbers?
2: So people find this surprising, but I would say the efficiency model. So the apartments um, model, I call it the efficiency type units. So the efficiency model is definitely far superior to the Lux game just because it's faster scale and because it's faster setup. The Lux game is a little bit more difficult because you're dealing with maybe like one person, and one agent or one property. But if you actually build inroads relationships with building owners or property managers, then you can actually get, you know, 10, 20, 30 units in one building. And they might be like, hey, we have another 50 units in this other building that's available for you to take over. So then you just get all these units that you get from like this one relationship and you can set them all up. And, you know, the sheer, because you have so much volume, the sheer amount of revenue you can generate and the amount of profits you can generate from those units is going to be far greater and a lot faster to accelerate and grow exponentially than just doing like one Lux at a time. That's what we realized. And we're kind of like, maybe the answer is to just drop the whole Lux game and just go efficiency units, especially in this market, right? Like we're in a recession. People, especially uh, who are traveling, if they're booking a hundred dollars a night properties versus, you know, a thousand dollar a night properties, like which one's going to sell faster, obviously the hundred dollars a night one. Right. So we're like, okay, so let's just pivot to the efficiency type business model, like for now, and then maybe revisit the Lux game a little bit later.
0: Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because with the Lux, you're you're putting your eggs in one basket, right? Like the cost associated with it is so expensive, whereas you spread that out among five or 10 units. So what if one unit isn't like completely rented out? You have other four other units to carry that sort of expensive need be getting into the States. So you are building it's, it's essentially like in Canada, like if you were to start in Canada, you're going to have to cold call people, right? You're going to have to build relationships and you have to sell yourself and get that one person to, to take a chance on you. Because I'm sure even as experienced as you are in the Canadian market, there was a lot of rejection in the States before you landed that, um, what was it, 10 units? Now, going into the States, how did you determine what area works better than other areas? I'm sure that so in the States, as we know, there's a lot of uh, sketchy patches. So what did you determine was the best location and, and why did you arrive at that conclusion?
2: Well, I mean, we use AirDNA mostly for surface level market research, just looking at the ADR and the occupancy. So there are certain metrics that we look out for. So if the ADR is above Uh, I believe it's 165 a night. And if the occupancy is above 65% in any given market, we think that it's a decent enough size to get into. So we kind of avoid the really trendy markets like Miami and for example, like Vegas, really. And we try to get into the smaller markets where there's good ADR and good occupancy rates. So the first city we got into was Cincinnati, Ohio, and we were able to get 10, no, actually 11 listings there. And that's where we first started. And then we realized that because Airbnb is highly cyclical, it's very seasonal. And you go through months of, you know, peak demand and peak revenue, and you go through cycles of shoulder months and low season, we realized that it's good to diversify the kind of listings you have. So we're like, okay, where do people like to travel in the wintertime? And the first immediate city that came to my mind was like Miami, but, you know, I didn't want to go there. So I was like, how about Phoenix, Arizona? So that was our next transition was going to Phoenix. And we picked up like 17, 18 listings there right now. And we were, we're just setting some up, some townhouses there. So anyways, the point is that though those snowbird listings carry you through the winter. And then the other listings will carry you through the summer. So you have these waves of peak revenue, shoulder months, and then another peak season coming in the wintertime. And then it creates more stability and consistency in the amount of profits you're able to generate.
0: Mm-hmm. digging one step closer into location, like, okay, so you you zoned in on Phoenix, Arizona. Is there any neighborhoods that you prefer to go to? Or is it just simply based on data? Like, like going on AirDNA, looking at the listings and kind of just determining regions from there? Or is it like neighborhoods that you prefer to stay in neighborhoods that you don't? And if let's say an area doesn't have really much Airbnbs, because I assume that some of these newer bills, they might not be a lot of things around it. Maybe that's a wrong assumption. Is that right? Uh, I mean,
2: not 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 always. I mean, the the buildings that we get into, it's we look we look at like local attractions. So is it close to the hospital? Is it close to uh, big employers? Like for example, like how far is from the stadium in Phoenix? Like Super Bowl was a pretty good season for us to get into. And you know, we just look at all these things where like what's bringing people here and how close can we get to the proximity of what's happening in that local region. Right. So that's kind of the barometer that we use to see if it's going to be a viable like area or neighborhood. But aside from that, like, you know, it's just a numbers game, right? You Just kind of see like what's available, what kind of properties are available for leasing, what Airbnb are close by, who are competitors, what are they charging? Just uh, doing those kind of like preliminary analysis will help you significantly because you don't want to get into a bad neighborhood. You don't want to get into, you know, off in the boonies where there's really nothing that's bringing people there, right? So proximity is definitely an important factor to setting up profitable Airbnb's. Mm-hmm.
1: You've now got properties in Toronto and probably a bunch of cities in Ontario. In the US, you've got, well, for sure, Cincinnati, Phoenix, and probably a bunch more. Like I struggle to manage, like my property managers in like three or four cities, right? So like I'm wondering how the heck you essentially grew here to successfully manage it I mean, look, real estate versus Airbnb. Airbnb generates a lot more cash flow, right? So I'm assuming that you're able to build out a little bit of teams to this, right? But if we talk about the first 80 units, what was your team like then? And then if we call it the first 200 units, because my rough math indicates to me that you're well above 200. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right here.
2: But yeah, you know, how did you? How did that team start off, and how did it grow? So you you backtrack that and think about on a micro level, right? And uh, think about all the processes that go into managing one property. Like, what does that look like? Right. And you ask yourself, if I were not involved in any of the operations to manage that one property, what would that entail? Who do you need? Right. And basically you break it down to a granular level of detail and then basically copy and paste that on a macro scale. So, you know, you would need your your cleaners, your handyman, the people you can call upon when there is any issues. You would need virtual assistants who are hired overseas to manage the guest communications. You need operations managers to oversee all that stuff. So you kind of have to rely on multiple moving pieces in the business. And because Airbnb is an online, you know, internet business, like it doesn't require like the operations managers to be anywhere physically, and we can do everything remotely. And that's one of the best things about this is that you can really set up anywhere around the world. I mean, I'm in Korea right now. And I'm still expanding in the U.S. And, you know, it's just a matter of like, can you really break down the science behind what goes on in the operations and separate the operations to little departments and then offload that to the people that are best suited to run those things?
0: That makes a lot of sense. I think with a lot of investors, they almost get ahead of themselves and think larger picture before they even have their first Airbnb. They think to themselves, how am I going to start a system when I have 20 or 30 Airbnbs? Get the first one down pat, do it yourself, figure out what you need to outsource and then build from there. And exactly what you're saying, like it's granular. And then you scale it up. I almost kind of want to get into the financing aspect of, of, Airbnbs, you're scaling at an aggressive pace. Generally speaking, when businesses scale the way you are, there's definitely some debt associated with it. Like people are not 10 Airbnbs, probably like what, 100K, maybe even more to start up. You're not shelling that out every single time, right? Like what does the finance structure look like in your business for such a high pace and high growth sort of business?
2: So the great thing about Airbnb arbitrage is a low cost barrier entry. So basically, for 10 listings, you can set it up for under $100,000. And once you set that up, each listing will generate on average about $1,500 in net profits per month for an average listing. So you do the math, you invest $100,000, you make $15,000 back in the first month. And then you roll that back into acquiring more Airbnbs. And it really snowballs really quickly, As especially because you're deploying the profits and the revenue as soon as you get them. So you give your capital no time to rest. You're basically just snowballing it aggressively. And that's pretty much how we were able to scale over the past three years, you know, turning this business. And the great thing about Airbnb is you can finance most of it through credit cards, right? Like we have an Amex Platinum with virtually no limit. We can put it on like $100,000 of furniture within a span of a week and then make the profits in the next month to pay for it, right? So that's one of the beauties about Airbnb arbitrage. And Fun fact is if you're with Amex long enough and you have a good standing with them, they'll actually give you a business loan. So we're offered a $300,000 business loan from Amex and then we're able to take advantage of that as well to set up more Airbnbs.
0: Awesome. So it's as simple as a credit card. There's nothing fancy or complicated
2: really from the debt point of view. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you got to start small, you got to start somewhere maybe for someone who's just starting out like 10 grand, 20 grand is enough to get the first two listings. Right. And then you just continue to snowball that and just use credit cards, lines of credits, whatever you have available to you to get the next maybe 10, 20 listings. And then you snowball the net profits from there to aggressively scale. And it's not just my own capital, right? Like I partnered with Carson recently. He was on your podcast a couple of episodes ago. So, you know, it was two entities basically pooling and money for our business.
1: So before we get into the entire Airbnb apocalypse, which I know we really want to talk to you about, um, there's a, I don't know, call it a big like community or a big thought of, of behind like this entire Airbnb management as kind of a business, right? So talk a little bit about Airbnb because we talked about Lux quite a bit, but if you talk about Airbnb arbitrage, which is more so what you're doing, right? If I'm not like that, that would be considered arbitrage. And then there's entire management piece. Like which one's better, I guess, is ultimately what people want to know, but just
2: break down the two. I mean, Airbnb management is completely different because then you're convincing uh, homeowners to essentially furnish the property themselves. And then you take on the management component. So for you, you're taking a percentage of the revenue and you're sharing no, none of the downside. So you're not making as much profit per se, but you're still making a percentage of revenue and making some kind of cash flow. And if things don't get booked, then, you know, you share zero downside. So honestly, I'm not a big component of Airbnb management because I feel like there's a lot of accountability that goes into it. You know, you're dealing with a lot of people's investment properties. And especially when things are not going well, you have a lot of people to answer to. And that can be stressful, right? So I personally like to take on all the risk myself. So I would much rather do the arbitrage where I'm signing the leases, I just pay the rent and then all things related to the business is something that's on my shoulders rather than me having to be accountable to all these other investors who are part of the business.
1: Okay. And so I guess the second part that I never got really touched on there was, I mean, so so in your case, your entire portfolio is heavily exposed to Airbnb, right? So I'm sure you've been watching this entire Airbnb apocalypse or, or whatever, all the different names and terms that are being thrown out there if we talk about the Canadian markets and then I'd love to hear what you think and, and see on the global side and in the U S and so on, we've definitely had certain markets that have had a significant like increase in the number of Airbnb listings that have come into it. I think Austin and I have talked in the podcast about how I think in it like grew drastically. It's so almost like as soon as the city legalized it, it like, drastically increased the number of listings that came on for Airbnb. But even before that, in some cities, um, before legalization, there's been a significant increase. So how has that impacted your business? Even if it's not you, like I don't, because you've got the coaching program going on and and you've got small and medium-sized operators as well under you, right? So how has it
2: impacted theirs? What are are people doing? Just shed some light there. I think one of the misconceptions that a lot of people have is that Airbnb is risky or business is risky but you know, it's not inherently risky. It's the entrepreneur who's operating from a foundation of ignorance and incompetence that makes the business risky. Like with anything else, Airbnb will go through cycles of profitability and losses as well. So what you have to do is figure out, okay, well, am I running an Airbnb or am I running a business? Right? So you have to get good at running your operations. And on the flip side, if you were a good operator and you knew all the secrets for the SEO, you had perfect pricing strategy, and you had a superior product, would it be unreasonable for you to succeed? The answer is no, of course not. So you have to understand that you can't just list any property and do a half-ass job and expect to make a profit, especially when the competition's fierce. Like everyone's getting into Airbnb now because of the popularity of it. And with the recession and with the whole Airbnb bus thing that's going on, people think like, oh, everyone must be suffering but that's not the case. I would say a good vast majority are not doing as well as before. And a lot of them are failing, but the top performers are still on top of the game, right? So for us, because we understand the SEO metrics, the pricing strategies, and because we're able to offer a superior product to our competitors, we're able to do so much better. And I think on the Canadian side, we understand that it goes through heavy seasons of demand. So we pivot our pricing strategies well in advance so that we're not just trying to get booked up like on a short-term basis. We're pivoting to more of like a monthly booking, like a midterm rental strategy well in advance of that we're just coasting through slow season, making marginal profits, but not suffering through the seasons of low demand.
0: That definitely does make sense. So you're keeping an eye. It sounds like what you're doing better than competition is actually keeping an eye out on performance. And when you notice a dip, you try to explore, think of creative ways and pivot, whereas most people will let it ride it out a little bit before they make any sort of decision. Or maybe they're just not savvy enough as well to figure out the pricing strategy. So, would you say that what's differentiating your performance versus most operators? And there, there's a large amount of reasons. Would you say pricing is one of the biggest differentiators that has helped you uh, remain booked through most of the
2: apocalypse, quote unquote? I would say pricing is a pretty good component of it because. You have to act preemptively, right? I mean, everyone knows when the slow season is coming. Everyone knows that in Canada, for the most part, winter is very, very slow in most cities. So if you know that, you should be implementing pricing in the summer in anticipation of the slow season to come, right? So you get all that lead times to get those midterm bookings to coast through slow season. And But what people do is they just have their calendars open. You know, They're not really hands-on with the pricing and they get to slow season, they're like, oh, damn, like, you know, we get, we have no bookings, we're just like just bleeding. And they think, oh, maybe something will change. But the reality is you didn't act quickly enough and nothing's going to change unless you actually change the pricing, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a few things, there's SEO, there's pricing, and then there's the design the furniture, right? So you have to make sure that all the key features of what goes into a successful listing are on point. And I would say the pricing is probably the most important thing on the back end. Once you have complete listing, because pricing itself allows you to sell to multiple different people, right? By discounting it heavily, you attract people who are looking for a bargain by pricing it higher. You're looking for someone who's maybe looking for a perfect stay well in advance, right? And they think that, oh, this listing looks great and it's priced so much higher than everyone else. Maybe there's a good reason for it. And they think that the price builds value in their minds, right? So they, they'll they book that listing because they think, oh, well, if I'm going to be traveling four months later, and this one's way more expensive than everything else, then there must be a good reason for it. And because I want my trip to be perfect, I'll, I'll actually book the one that's more expensive. That's how a lot of these people like to think. And therefore, you're able to build significant margins in advance by doing that kind of pricing strategy by building in those premiums early. And therefore, when that month comes, you've already stacked your, your calendar with yeah. all these high ticket reservations that are high margin. And then you're not really pressed to get you know, all this occupancy. And then you can just adjust accordingly based on your lead time. That's a lot of jargon and techno battle, I understand. For people who may not be familiar with Airbnb, but that's essentially the gist of pricing strategy is you gotta make sure that you're catering to different groups through your pricing alone. So just to make sure I understand properly,
1: Are you saying like if today's March, right? So if we're talking about um, August log weekend, you're pricing Well, okay, That's a really bad example. Let's just assume we're in August and we're talking about like November, right? Are you pricing high to come across as a luxury product and stand out amongst the competition?
2: I'll give you an example. Yeah, I'll give you an example. So I have a property in Toronto, right? It's a, it's an entire home. My comparables are renting out at 300 to $400 a night for the house. For the summer, my prices are about $800 to $900. And like the difference isn't that big, but obviously our furniture looks a lot better. Our foot photos are significantly better than the vast majority of people's. And when people are looking for that perfect family vacation in Toronto, or maybe they're, you know, getting away for someone's wedding reception and they wanted to stay in like a nicer place then they're the ones who are inquiring and booking. Like we had someone inquire for two nights and, you know, the total for the reservation was $2,000 basically Mm -hmm. after the cleaning fee. So, you know, that itself is half my rent, right? So you could basically get half the rent through a two night reservation by doing that, that kind of pricing strategy. Whereas most people will just leave it at the 300 to $400 a night and just blend in with the rest of the listings. And, you know, when people are just looking and everyone else is at like $300, $400 a night, it doesn't really do much to stand out or build value in their minds. But by premium pricing, you're able to build in that value and actually lock in the higher ticket reservations. Now, let me ask does
0: the opposite work? Um, if everyone's through to 400 going, like, let's say 250, is that something that you've done as well? Like almost like people planning ahead, looking for a discount four months out. And generally, you want to absorb that clientele and get your calendars booked for shoulder season or off season, right?
2: For shoulder season, yes. But again, like with lead time, the more lead time you have, the higher your prices should be. That's typically the rule of STR. And so I wouldn't necessarily price it under the competition well in advance, but I would incentivize it in different ways. So basically you'd have certain discounts for seven nights days, uh, two weeks days and one month stays to attract people to just book up the entire calendar. And mm-hmm. therefore you're still making a pretty decent profit while well in advance, locking in those, long-term bookings through slow season. And then you're basically like you're, you're set you're not worried about, Oh, am I going to be vacant this month? You know, that's typically how I like to price it.
0: Yeah. I like that. You're thinking well ahead. So if it's March, you're thinking for summer or probably even before March, you're thinking for summer when it's summer, you're thinking for winter. And that's something that most operators don't do. Cause that's like very business savvy. That's what a business mind would do. But most operators would just try to maximize what they can over the next few weeks. And if there's vacancies next week, they're going to do whatever they can to try to fill it instead of thinking forward and ahead. One interesting thing you mentioned is, is that obviously your furnishing is better or your photos and your marketing is better than the competition because of the scale of your Airbnb business. Are you still having a designer make a theme for every single Airbnb. I know that's very popular among smaller operators and it does well, but I'm just not sure how scalable it is when you're talking about buying 10 or 20 units every month, right? Or arbitraging 10 or 20 units, or do you just kind of have a specific sort of spreadsheet, like buy all of this design it and that's it.
2: Um, I mean, the design gets a little bit nuanced because the space, the dimensions of each room can vary and therefore what may have worked in one room will not work in a different room. So, but we don't get cute with our designs. Like we're not like theming it out with like, you know, Disney and all this stuff that other people like to do. We have a certain template we have certain design aesthetics that we'd like to go for. And our designers will cater that kind of template to what the space will actually call for. And especially if you're doing like efficiency units, like 10, 20 units in a building, because they're typically copy and paste layouts So like the one bedrooms will typically be all the same layout. The two bedrooms will be all be the same layout. You can just literally copy and paste the same design across all the units. And then you just have a a much lower cost basis design and furnish the entire portfolio of listings Mm -hmm. in that one building.
0: So your competition, Airbnb is one of them, but on the grander scheme you're operating within the tourism or not tourism, hospitality sort of industry, right? So Your indirect competition are hotel and motel chains. That being said, the cost of renting has skyrocketed in Ontario. I know maybe you're not scaling as aggressively in Ontario, but I want to hear your thoughts because most of our listeners are ontario based. The cost of renting has skyrocketed in Ontario. The cost of labor has gone up. The cost of furnishing has gone up. And you can't really pass all of those costs on to the consumers when there's more competition. That's in the market. And plus, you have to be cognizant of hotels in are nearby, because at this point, I've almost seen hotels in downtown Toronto going at like three fifty four hundred a night. And we're talking about like luxury hotel with amenities that condos cannot compete with. Right. In downtown Toronto specifically. And then downtown Toronto condos, you can go on Airbnb and it's almost the same price as these sort of like hotels. Are those things that you research, are those things that you look at, what are your thoughts on the increase in cost in Airbnb? And does that worry you that there's going to be a point where you can't continually pass that cost on? And so the margins slowly get eroded. Or am I just like being overly pessimistic with all of this?
2: No, I think you're definitely spot on there. I mean, there are certain markets where the math just doesn't make sense anymore in Ontario, especially with the newer rental rates and just the quality of product that's out there, right? So my advice would be, you need to target two things. Number 1, you have to really look at the cost efficiency of your acquisitions. So, in Ontario, I think there are still some new builds where, you know, they're they're building out highly amenitized buildings with swimming pools with the gyms with the saunas and, you know, even like a, maybe a grocery market underneath. So, you want to be in a market where a lot of listings are not heavily amenitized. It can make a lot of sense to take on 10-20 units in a one building that are efficiency style that will cost you less to set up, but also have all the amenities of a nicer hotel, right? So by doing so, you're able to stand up in the crowd, you're getting with a lower cost basis, and uh, you're actually able to negotiate better terms and better rents because you're leasing so many units, right? And that's one of the strategies that we implement is because we lease so many units at one time, we always negotiate a lower rent and we negotiate a free rent period. And the free rent period is absolutely key because if you're able to negotiate two months free rent, all of the, the front load of revenue making the first two months is pure profit, which means you can take that and set up more listings right away, right? You're not waiting just to like make all the money back for your furniture. You can take all that revenue you make in the first two months and just throw it at another 20 listings. And then if you get two months free rent on that, you can take all that revenue and throw it into you know 20 more listings and so on and so forth, right? And that is what I find to be key. But again, like I think it's either you go for the efficiency style or you go for this slightly more luxurious type of properties, like the single family homes that may offer more space, maybe a swing pool in the back, uh, that kind of thing, and uh, where you'll make a little bit more margin on uh, the, the business. I think that's the way to go. I think the, the the game of getting into duplexes and just you know offering like a single unit up in town, trying to make a profit. I think that's slowly going away. In many markets in Ontario.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Cause if you rent a unit in a fourplex and you arbitrage it and the hotel next door, you might as well go to the hotel next door for the same price. But if it's a single family home, someone wants to stay in a single family home. It's not comparable to like a hotel or a small little unit there. So yeah, no, that clarifies things. Maya, you want to, you, you had a yeah, question, right?
1: the, So my, my question kind of goes backwards a little bit in, in the episode. We talked about the finance side a little bit, right? And Aaron, I think you're someone that you live a, a pretty cool lifestyle, right? Like you're traveling all around the world and you've got the fancy cars and all that kind of stuff, right? So I, I think a lot of, especially like our Ontario listeners, a lot of people have gone into arbitrage and they're kind of seeing it as a way to make quick money, right? But I'm curious, at what point do you really start to make money, right? So it might be like, you've got, you know, two, three properties, you might be making like two grand, then something happens and someone trashes your place and all of a sudden all of your cash flow is gone, right? Is it 10 units? Is it... 50 units. What was that point that you start to actually make real money, which is like, I'm now accounted for every single possible thing that could go wrong. I have like so much buffer zone. And now I can start to
2: take some money out of this business. The key point is you want to make money at all levels, right? There isn't like a certain point where you're like, okay, I'm making good money. Now you should be making good money from the get go. And if you're not making good money from the get go, then do you really have a business to scale? Right. That's the key point. And I think the real money comes when you're actually making at least a hundred thousand in revenue, because let's say your net margins are about 35, 40%, then you're making about 30,000, 40,000 a month in net profits. And that gives you a little bit of wiggle room in terms of what you can finance and what you can really live off of while still reinvesting into the business. And contrary to popular belief, like I don't actually live a very fancy lifestyle. Like I actually sold my cars before coming back, coming to Korea. Um, And like my typical cost of just living, I don't really go out to fancy dinners. I don't really spend too much money. I actually grew a lot of my early business savings through frugality. I think Austin might know, but uh, I was really big on frugality in the beginning. Not so much anymore, but, you know, I think that's a really key component, especially in the early stages is just spending a lot less than you earn, right? Because wealth is not a number. Wealth is a ratio. Wealth is a ratio of how much are you earning and how much are you actually keeping. So I think if you internalize that, then really at any point in the game, we can become wealthy because someone who's making five grand and living off of 2000 a month, like you're already there. Right. Especially if the the money is coming in mostly passively. And then for the person who's making a hundred thousand a month, and spending a hundred thousand a month. They're not wealthy by any means they're living paycheck to paycheck, essentially. Right. So I would say that realistically you should be making money at all levels and um, keep your expenses low. That's yeah. what I want
1: to tell people. Yeah. I think people see the end result. I, I've literally had this conversation with like two or three people, both who are like in university. They're like, yeah, I'm going to drop out. One city's going to be, become a wholesaler for that. I've Janaid. Um, and he's like, I'm gonna drop out of university. I'm gonna become a center. The other guy said he's gonna do Airbnb, and I was just like, guys, I feel like you're missing out on the entire like early part of your journey, where it's just grinding, saving as much as you possibly can, and reinvesting heavily, which it's part of everyone's journey, I think, here or else we wouldn't have been able to make the investments we did, right? So
0: and just think about the people who have gotten hurt the most in this market are people who took refi checks from Fast Money, they made from houses and bought nice shit with it. And now, uh, they're being foreclosed on, right? So mm-hmm. I think there's always a layer of responsibility. Yes, you could run into a lot of money, but, uh, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, it's important to be frugal, reinvest that money into your business. As long as you obviously, it seems like that's what you're doing to continue to scale it and, and to live a humble lifestyle. Because at any time, and, and we've seen this with a lot of fix and flippers where they're making money hands over fist at any time, if you're, if the income stream stops, you need to have money saved for a rainy day, right? And you need to be adjusted to a certain lifestyle. Imagine going up and spending a hundred thousand a month, like going back to 5k a month is gonna be like killing yourself to a lot of people.
2: Um <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think a key point touched upon there as well is like, you know, the thing with real estate is it's very equity heavy and low cash flow for the most part. I mean, people get into real estate because they want to create path of income for themselves, but the reality is the days of making a thousand dollars a month for properties. long gone especially with the interest rates and the rising costs of just holding a property right and that's one of the main reasons that i got into airbnb arbitrage is because you can invest far less money and make a lot more profits per unit right and i realized the power of just having a massive income stream early and really when you're making a lot of money per month like you can pretty much withstand anything you can get through anything but if you're equity rich but cash flow poor there's a lot of things that can really happen in your business that could potentially put you sideways, especially if the equity is not really there anymore. Which is the most part, for the most part, applicable to a lot of people who bought properties in the last two years. Like most of their equity that they've earned is pretty much gone. So,
0: yeah, investors look at income statements, not cash flow statements, and I think it's important for people to look at cash flow statements as well. I guess contrary opinion to
1: that, because um, I've talked to a bunch of like mortgage funds that are just like business owners, and they're like, "My, like the shit that you guys are doing in real estate?" It's like it's pretty soft. Like it's pretty safe. You're going to get a consistent like rent check. They're like, we're putting like a hundred grand into like opening up a shop, 200 grand to opening up a shop. You know, sure. Like you do a little bit of homework, you can do your feasibility studies or whatever, but there's really no guarantee that the customers are going to come. Right. So they're like, you know, we're putting 200 grand into a restaurant. We don't know if it's going to do well, or or we're going to try as much as we can to make it do well. And I'd argue it's a little bit of the same thing in arbitrage. Like you don't really know, Will the clientele come if I position myself near, I don't know, like Sudbury, like, I just don't know, right? Maybe they'll come, maybe they won't as much as you can air DNA stuff. But if you buy a rental, fuck, you know, you're going to have a tenant for the most part, right? So like the risk is, it's still
2: there. It's just different. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you know, business is not for everyone, right? So before you chase the shiny coin, you have to ask yourself, am I fully capable of running a business, right? Is, Is business really for me? Again, like I always say this, like businesses aren't risky. It's the entrepreneur that makes it risky because you operate from the foundation of ignorance and or incompetence. And that's what really makes the business risky. Because, you know, if you were the best in the industry, you'd obviously make all the money. But if you just suck, you won't make anything. And chances are you'll fail. And the vast majority of people who get into business typically aren't really business owners. They're just people who want to make money and they get into it for all the wrong reasons. And they don't have a good enough reason to, to better themselves individually to improve on the various metrics that a business will require. Right. And it's kind of like this, if you were to build a table with one leg, would it be able to support itself? Maybe if you put it right in the center, but the moment you exert force on any side of the table, that's when it collapses. Right. And you have to have a stable foundation of, of personal traits to actually keep the business going and to keep it standing. But the vast majority of people, if they have that one reason, which is to make money, which is, it's akin to building that table with that one leg in the center. And then the moment anything goes sideways, like the whole thing collapses and they're like, well, shit, business is risky. You know what I mean? So it's not really business that is risky. It's you that makes it risky. So I guess on that
1: topic, how do you think people really can go about mitigating themselves? Cause obviously you've got the coaching business, Cheryl also want to quickly touch on, but is it just ultimately like build up your capital reserves to as much as possible get educated. Like that's kind of the stuff that people hear about, but it's like, at what point are you just like over educating yourself? At what point are you just being a person? You've got too much capital, like built up, like
2: go and deploy it. Right. There's gotta be a sweet spot here. I don't fucking know what it is. Um, yeah, I was curious your thoughts there. Yeah, sure. I do mentorship, but no amount of mentorship or no amount of books will actually put, you know, make you better unless we actually put in the reps. Right. It's like, it's like, Learning about the gym and not having lifted a single weight and expecting to get jacked, like it's not going to work, right? You actually have to go to the gym and actually put in the reps, get under the bar, go through movements and actually, you know, figure out, okay, this is what it feels like. And then whatever you read and whatever you view after that becomes more applicable and therefore you can grow, right? So my advice to people is number one, get educated, but actually put in the work, right? Actually do the thing that you want to be doing because only then will you actually learn and the education becomes applicable and therefore it can compound your learnings, right? And surround yourself with people who are actually on the same path trajectory. And like a business is not run by one person. You have to have other people in the business who are good at the things you are not good at in order for it to grow, right? Too often people get into business as a solo game and they're like, yeah, I'm gonna do everything myself. I'll do this, do that, do, do this. But the reality is you are weak at many parts of the business and you are sabotaging yourself by putting the responsibility on you to execute and perform on those areas when you could just as easily bring someone else who is far more capable in those departments than you are, and therefore elevate the whole business as a whole. Right. And that's what people miss is like you do not grow the business by yourself. You can only grow a successful business by having people in the business who are good at the things you lack in and being acutely okay. aware of what you're good at. All right, man. So at this point in the podcast, you have two
1: questions. One is. Where do you see your business going? Let's call it in the next like two to three years
2: from now. Um, I mean, I always thought it'd be cool to reach a billion dollars in valuation, not revenue, in valuation. So if you do the math, if you have a hundred million dollar revenue business, typically at that scale, they go off a multiple of revenue and you can actually get to a billion dollar business. And that's kind of been my overarching goal is just like building something really massive. But I think intermediate steps, like two to three years out, hopefully, well, we're right on track to hit 10 million a year in revenue, I think by next year and two, three years, I'm hoping to hit 50. And we want to get to, you know, in terms of unit size, like I think that'll take about 2000, 3000 listings.
0: I'm not sure if you want to disclose it, but international plans, or is that not what you want to chat about right now?
2: (laughs) Yeah. International as well. Like right now we're just trying to create like a solid foundation in the US and operate in many different states. But I think next year, 2024, is when we're looking to get into Dubai. And that's something we've had on our radar for a long time is extending to Dubai. Awesome.
1: Nice. And I guess for, usually it's for new investors, but let's say for new people looking to get into Airbnb or arbitrage or their own properties, what kind of advice, what's the main piece
2: of advice you want to share with them? Have a strong why. I would say that's number one for anything. Because, you know, you can see people on social media doing Airbnb, wholesaling, flipping, all this kind of stuff, but you're getting into it for the wrong reasons, right? You see the dollars, you see the profits and you're like, damn, I want that money. And therefore you get into it. But then, you know, do you have a strong enough why? because when things go south, you need to have the, the durability to withstand it and actually, you know, persevere through the hard times. And that's what really makes it successful, right? So having the strong will be your anchor, something that holds you in place when things go south. But I and I think a lot of people get into multiple different strategies because of shiny object syndrome and they just they waver because the foundation's not there. They don't have a strong line. And then, you know, I, I would recommend you actually know what you're getting yourself into, finding out the real reason why you actually want to get into this. And then from there, it's just making sure you have all the foundational pieces of the business together, like the acquisitions, the operations. The thing with Airbnb is that although you have to be good on a macro scale. You also have to be very good with the granular stuff. So a lot of the operation is very detail-oriented, uh, especially when it comes to the, the manuals, the processes, the guidelines, teaching your virtual assistants how to communicate with guests. Because when you're hiring people overseas, man, like the, the, the variability in how they'll respond to people can vary from like one side to another side of the spectrum. So having just the granular details of how you want them to respond to guests as well, like even that is, is a big challenge for us but you know like you need to be very good with the granular and the macro mhm
0: mhm Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, As per usual, this episode is fantastic. And it's always exciting to see what you're doing, because I think you're doing something very different than most real estate investors, right? When we talk about business and real estate, most people are doing wholesaling, flipping or multifamily or a variation of one of those three. But you're building out a business, uh, an Airbnb arbitrage, which obviously a strategy in real estate, but you're thinking about it from an entrepreneurial perspective, from a business perspective. Um, You're looking at it as a business and you want it to be a billion dollar valuation, right? So whereas most people, they just look at profits, what's my net income, and that's that's about it, right? They don't look at valuation as a whole. So I really like the uniqueness that you, I guess I say uniqueness, it's unique in real estate, definitely, that you take the approach of, of scaling your Airbnb arbitrage business. That being said, I'm sure we're gonna have you on in two years when you, or even next year when you expand to Dubai. So that'll be pretty cool. In the meantime, if people wanna connect with you, reach out to you, I'm not sure I saw that you're not really having your mentorship program open just yet, but if people want to stay tuned for that, when you do open spots, how could they best connect with you?
2: Yeah. uh, Instagram bay money underscore is where you can find me. You know, we've had the mentorship program running for a few months now and I just kind of closed it off because I want to have more time for myself. And, uh, but I will be opening it up back I think later in the summer potentially. So yeah, keep an eye out.
0: Nice. I like the approach of you, not, oversaturating ton of students in there. That's nice. (laughs) Not very common in in real estate. Awesome, man. Uh, Again, really appreciate having you on here. If you guys enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, leave a five-star review. And until next time, everyone invest smarter and live better. Take care all.